Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland, and the time now is just about 11 o'clock. KBOO's Kickstarter is live. We need to band together other media outlets, normalize exclusion and group thinking. We encourage communication and sharing of unheard perspectives. And right now, I'd like to thank a few folks who decided to agree with this and gave us some support this morning. So a big uh, thank you to Brian, Emily, Odzed, Deborah, Deborah, and Anonymous. So please go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter and help KBOO build a city of media makers. That's kboo.fm slash kickstarter. And coming up on The Boo at 1130, Madness Radio looks at what it's like to be a queer, pregnant teenager in a psychiatric hospital when they talk to the author of Girls Like Me. And now stay tuned for Health Watch. Dr. David Naiman speaks to Dr. Philip Landrigan, the author of Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know. KABU is building a city of media makers. For 50 years, KABU has had an open-door policy and trained anyone who is interested to create radio and media. We believe in mutual aid, a reciprocal change of resources and services for the benefit of all. What a stale place Portland could be if we lose our diversity of voices and our creative climate that emphasizes fun, truth, beauty, joy, peace, love, and justice. We know that with our expertise and your support, we can keep this city creative, activated, and aware through radio we make together. Invest in the future of media makers and join us on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter and thank you for your support of KBOO. KABU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KABU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KABU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Personnel Committee will meet on the second Monday of each month at 6 p.m.
purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their healthcare practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dr. Philip Landrigan. Dr. Landrigan is a pediatrician, epidemiologist, and internationally recognized pioneer in children's environmental health. His studies of childhood lead poisoning catalyzed the removal of lead from gasoline, an action that has reduced lead poisoning by 90% in the United States and raised the IQ of children as a result. His studies on children's vulnerability to pesticides triggered passage of the federal pesticide law called the Food Quality Protection Act, the only U.S. environmental law with standards explicitly protecting children. Dr. Landrigan has served as a consultant for the World Health Organization, published seven books, and written over 600 scientific articles. He's a professor of pediatrics and preventative medicine, as well as the founding director of the Children's Environmental Health Center at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And he's here today on Health Watch to talk about his latest book, co-authored with health educator and healthcare administrator Mary Landrigan, entitled Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know from Oxford University Press a book that offers practical, actionable advice for mitigating the threat of chemical toxins in one's home and environment. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Philip Landrigan. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and to be talking with you in Oregon. So uh, at the beginning, you, you juxtaposed two phenomenon of the last uh, half century. On the one hand, we have 80,000 new chemicals that have been released into the environment in the last 40 years. On the other hand, we have the skyrocketing rate of childhood diseases from autism to asthma to ADHD to diabetes, and the World Health Organization attributing a third of childhood deaths to environmental causes. But even looking solely at the rise of these diseases, it raises the question of um, how much chemicals and the rise of chemicals are related to the rise in, the, in these childhood diseases. So how do you go about, it to be, as, a, as a scientist and as a physician, parsing out what is just a correlation versus a causation between uh, these rise in illnesses and this rise in chemicals? Yes, that's, that's a very important question because um, when, when we see diseases like asthma tripling in frequency in the United States since 1970 or the enormous rise in autism that we've all read about, um, one has to, to wonder are, what, what's the cause and, and the follow-up question is are are toxic chemicals in the environment part of the cause? So the way the way this the way the scientific community, the pediatric uh, research community, has gone about this is to do what are called prospective studies. And, and in a prospective study, women are recruited into the study while they're pregnant. Uh, and the reason the reason that we we do it that way is we realize that the seeds for many of these diseases. Are, are are basically sown by exposures that take place during pregnancy. And so starting about 15 years ago, colleagues and I realized that we had to do studies that enrolled pregnant women, measured exposures in these women in real time while the women were pregnant, and then follow their babies, their children, prospectively, longitudinally, as the children grow up. And the, the fundamental idea is that in this kind of a study, you can actually relate an exposure that occurs during pregnancy or shortly after birth with the subsequent 
development of disease in that in that same child. And this study design gets you beyond the the, the um, merely an association. Uh, you can actually prove causation if you can show that the exposure precedes the disease and that this pattern is repeated in in large numbers of children. And, and also, I, I thought it was interesting in, in uh, children and environmental toxins that new studies are showing that these toxins are not just the culprit uh, or one of the culprits in increasing childhood disease, but that early exposure to toxins is linked to adult onset diseases like hi- hypertension, stroke, and even cancer and Parkinson's. Yes, that's one of the very interesting and somewhat frightening uh, results that's emerged from this research over the last few years. Uh, The link between early life exposures and later disease actually began with studies of people who had survived World War II, people who were exposed to famine conditions uh, during the 1940s in Europe, mostly in Holland. And, and, And scientists over there found that babies in the womb who had been subjected to extreme starvation during the last two years of World War II grew up to become adults who were at greater risk for obesity and diabetes and heart disease, kidney disease, and stroke. And um, more recently, colleagues and I in the pediatric environmental health community have picked up on that notion and found that the same general pattern holds true for people who are exposed, for babies that are exposed in in the womb to toxic chemicals. It pushes up the risk for later disease. And this is an area where a lot of work is going on at the present time. It's going to take a few years, obviously, for the full pattern to become evident because you have to track people for many years to see the late effects. But it, um, I, I think, it, generally speaking, the findings are holding up, and they have very important implications for medical practice. It, uh, one implication is that people in the obstetrical community are going to need to get more uh, directly involved in thinking about toxic exposures to women who are pregnant and even to women who are not yet pregnant, thinking about becoming pregnant. Pediatricians are going to have to be concerned. And then adult doctors, even geriatricians, are going to have to, uh, uh, when they see a patient with a chronic disease, wonder what might have been the exposures way back at the beginning of life that, that triggered these diseases. So let's talk a little bit about why children are uniquely vulnerable, why children are not just little adults, and uh, how their their different vulnerability is, is a key around uh, some of these uh, questions of the rise in childhood disease. Sure, sure. That's, that, that really comes right to the heart of it. So one of, the, one of the key things we found in all of this research is that children, infants in the womb and children after birth, are much more sensitive to toxic chemicals than than adults. Uh, We found that a very, very small dose of a chemical like lead, like pesticide, that gets into uh, a very small child, uh, a a, a small dose that would bounce off you or me or any other adult, can, if it gets into the child at the wrong moment during pregnancy or in early childhood, can can cause devastating damage. And we learned this first for lead. We learned that very tiny exposures to lead during pregnancy and in the ages under the age of five could cause uh, uh, loss of IQ and shortening of attention span and behavioral problems uh, in children. And in the years that have gone 
by since we learned that about lead back in the 1970s and 1980s, we've come to realize that this is a very general pattern that uh, very small exposures in early life can can cause uh, health problems that, that persist for decades. We, we've also, another thing that we learned in the course of this work is that the placenta provides no no protection of the uh, unborn child to most toxic chemicals. Back when I was in medical school, we were taught to believe that the placenta was a barrier and, and it protected the child. And, uh, and it turns out, unfortunately, that most of the chemicals that we deal with in the world today can actually go right across the placenta. They can pass from the mother's circulation into the baby's circulation and get into the baby's body to, to cause harm. So it's very important to um, that pregnant women uh, take care to protect themselves against toxic chemicals in the environment, and it's equally important that, that young children be protected in their homes, in their schools, in their communities. And, and this difference between the way an adult and a child would potentially respond to a toxic exposure is not well reflected in the uh, safety standards. So, for instance, um, uh, the the acceptable level of pesticides on vegetable and vegetables and fruit is based on an adult exposure rather than a childhood exposure. So, how how does an individual um, uh, sort through this conundrum around exposing their children, let's say, to pesticides? When, um, when the safety standards put out by the government aren't reflecting the difference in, in physiology and, and pathophysiology. Right. No, that's a, that's a great point. So actually the safety standards for pesticides are supposed to reflect uh, children's sensitivity. You, in, in, during your introduction, you mentioned the Food Quality Protection Act, which is the federal pesticide law. And under the Food Quality Protection Act, the Environmental Protection Agency is supposed to set standards for pesticides in food that are low enough to protect children's health. Unfortunately, uh, the unfortunate reality is that too often um, EPA doesn't do that. They don't take the steps that they're legally supposed to take to protect children. And, and the result is that when uh, a parent goes to the grocery store to buy foods, there's the real risk that there can be levels of pesticide in the food that would not harm an adult. But could harm a child. So how does a how does a parent protect their child against that? I think the answer is, to the extent possible, parents should buy organic. I'm, I'm well aware that organic costs more. Um, I understand that completely. But we know from well-conducted studies that families who eat mostly organic fruits and vegetables have 90%, 90% less pesticide in their body than people who are eating so-called conventionally grown foods. Well, let's talk about some of the other things people can do in the home. You, you mentioned some some interesting things. So you, we eating organic, obviously, near the top of the list. But you also talk about some other things. For instance, um, avoiding antimicrobial soaps and, and cleaning products, which a lot of people might be surprised to hear is something that you might not want to be pursuing um, in in your home. Yeah, the, the antimicrobial soaps have, have two problems. First of, first of all, uh, most of those soaps are a mix of many chemicals, and some of the chemicals in there have their own toxic properties. And the other problem is that they, they reduce the, a person's exposure to the good bacteria that normally live in our gut that, that protects us against a lot of illnesses. So, sure, it's important to be clean. It's important to wash your hands, but, but it's also important 
not to overdo it and not, and not to re overly rely on, on products that contain toxic chemicals. And, and what are some of the other things that might leap to mind that you'd want to share with listeners today um, in terms of making the home safer for, for children? Um, we have Obviously, we have a lot of news about lead exposure and you're bringing forth this this notion of, of minimizing pesticide exposure, but what other things might not be as obvious? Well, let me be, be, I'll answer that, but let me first say a word about lead, because unfortunately, as we learned uh, all too sadly from Flint, Michigan, lead is still a big problem uh, in America, and it's probably still the most widely uh, uh, widespread toxic chemical to which American children are at risk of exposure. There's still several million homes and apartments in the country that have old lead paint. These, By and large, these are apartments that were built and homes that were built before 1977 when the use of lead paint was still legal. And every year uh, we see children, in, mostly in cities all across the United States, east and west, north and south, uh, who are exposed to, um, to lead paint chips. So I always very strongly advise families who are moving into an older home to get a proper survey of lead paint done in that home before they move in and if any abatement work needs to be done get the work done before you move in and have it done by a professional don't try to do it yourself uh, so that's lead um, another thing about lead uh, has to do with the fact that every year we see a couple or three cases of young couples who who decide that they're going to make a room perfect for the new baby these would be pregnant couples and they work to remove lead paint from a room in the house that they're going to turn into the baby's nursery. And the sad consequence of that well-intentioned action is that the mom and the dad get themselves exposed to high levels of lead during pregnancy, which is, of course, extremely dangerous. In addition to lead, we, we talked about pesticides, and we talked about reducing exposure to pesticides in the diet by eating organic. Another way to reduce exposure to pesticides is to minimize, or better yet, eliminate completely, if you can, the use of pesticides on your lawn, in your garden, and, and inside your home. Uh, there are some lovely, lovely very effective, non-chemical approaches to insect control, which go by the generic name of integrated pest management. Uh, plenty of references to that on the, on the internet you can read about and under the un, under the heading of integrated pest management the idea is that you save the toxic chemical pesticide as a last resort only use it when all all other approaches uh, have failed and it's it's very effective we've we've field tested it in inner city apartments in Harlem and New York City and found that even under those very austere and difficult conditions, um, integrated pest management is more effective than having the pest exterminator come in and spray the apartment every month. You also mentioned uh, brominated flame retardants. What, what are brominated flame retardants and, and why, why would someone want to try to avoid them if possible? Yeah, brominated flame retardants are a class of chemicals that are legally required in most states to be added to household products that might catch fire. So it, uh, the, the brominated flame retardants are added to furniture, like chairs and couches, to mattresses, carpets, curtains, and so on. Uh, 
they have two problems. The first is that they're not very effective at preventing fire. Uh, the, the chemical industry has substantially oversold the efficacy of these compounds as flame retardants. And the second problem is they're toxic to brain development in young children. And the way they, the way they expose young children is that the brominated flame retardants don't stay in the products that, to which they've been added. They, 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 they come out of the furniture, they come out of the carpets, they get into the dust in the house, and once those chemicals are in the dust, they can be picked up by a woman who's, who's pregnant, uh, for example, if she's vacuuming and, and spreads the dust around, and they can be picked up by a little child who's crawling around on the floor, puts his fingers in the dust, and then, and then licks the fingers. So there's a movement on now in a number of states to sharply reduce or even eliminate the use of these compounds. California has been a leader. Uh, in in that, but many other states have followed suit, and it's uh, something that I applaud. Uh, we've we've learned that early life exposure to brominated flame retardants very directly reduces a child's IQ, reduces intelligence, and alters their behavior. And when we've done follow-up studies and followed some of these uh, children um, into their teen years, the, some of the behaviors that they get into are very very unfortunate and self-destructive. So it, it's really important to protect children against against these chemicals. Well, one of the interesting things I, I found in the book, Dr. Landrigan, is um, not only that children are, are uniquely susceptible, but that a chemical toxicity in a child may not have immediate obvious symptoms. So can you talk a little bit about how those two things coexist, that children are particularly vulnerable but that doesn't mean you're going to see some sort of um, acute flare-up of symptoms necessarily. No, the I mean, I would say it's that most chemical exposures to children produce no obvious symptoms. The the most severe exposures, high dose lead poisoning, uh, extreme pesticide poisoning, make a child obviously sick, and the child ends up in the emergency room or in the hospital. But those those obvious cases are only the tip of the iceberg, and most chemical exposures to children produce silent damage. So, for example, lead, pesticides, brominated flame retardants cause silent brain damage. There's no symptoms. There's no convulsions. Uh, the child appears to be functioning okay, but if the child is taken to a, child, to a developmental pediatrician or a child psychologist, they can see that the child has developmental delays and uh, problems with speech and learning problems with, with attention span. Likewise, if a child is exposed to a chemical uh, that can cause cancer, like asbestos, which causes lung cancer, or benzene, which causes leukemia and lymphoma, um, no symptoms are going to be evident at all in the child for years and maybe even for several decades after the exposure. But the problem is, is that silent damage has been done within the child's cells and eventually the disease the disease shows up. And it all speaks to the importance of really going the extra step to protect children against toxic hazards, uh, not accepting bland reassurances from the chemical industry or the pesticide industry that their products are safe, but instead exercising a lot of parental caution. And other than eating organic, is there other dietary advice that, that you would put forth in this regard? Oh yes, there are there are lots of things that uh, that families can do to um, uh, improve their children's diet, improve their nutrition, 
reduce the risk of obesity, and if you reduce the risk of obesity, you're also reducing the risk of diabetes and, and heart disease. So first and foremost, eat a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables, uh, and if possible, organic fruits and vegetables. Secondly, minimize red meat. Red meat uh, has important constituents in it, but it also has a lot of a lot of fats, and if, unless it's free range, it's got a lot of hormones. So I think it's it's good to reduce uh, uh, red meat. Thirdly, it's very good for pregnant women and also for kids to eat lots of fish. Fish, prom- uh, the fatty acids uh, in fish promote brain growth. They they promote uh, heart health. However, it's um, when parents are selecting fish. It's very important that they get that they eat safely. There, there are some fish that are high in mercury, uh, and it's important to avoid those fish. Um, the best thing for parents to do to know which are the safe fish and which fish, which are the fish to avoid, is to um, go online. There are several very well-developed lists of safe and unsafe fish that have been developed. One has been developed by the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. Another one has developed by NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Yet another has been developed by the Environmental Working Group. All of these um, present parents with a nice menu of which fish to choose. So so at the, at the top of the half hour, I mentioned the statistic that there are 80,000 new chemicals that have been released in the environment in, in the last 40 years. And what people might be surprised to learn is that many of the widest of the chemicals that with the widest use have never been tested at all for safety or toxicity. So that there's this inadvertent effect that in places like the European Union, which have done probably the most on the globe to protect children legislatively, that the United States has become a dumping ground for a lot of these chemicals that are are better regulated in Europe. And so the companies are are pushing them through a market a market without any regulation, so or very little regulation. So I was curious if there's any hope in the legislative world, if l- listeners wanted to become politically engaged. Is there anything going on, um, any groundswell around uh, more regulation that would make things safer for for consumers? Yes, I would say there is. Let me let me first say that everything you've just said is absolutely true. That that the U.S. has a very weak system for regulating chemicals, and although it's absolutely true that many of the chemicals that have been invented in the last 50 years have brought with them enormous benefits, new drugs, new cancer treatments, new building materials, just to name a few. Uh, we've uh, the chemical industry and the government have both done a terrible job of. Um, Exercising due diligence over the over the so-called chemical rev- revolution, and the result is that the great majority of chemicals that are now on the American market have never been tested for their uh, for their safety or for their possible ability to damage children. Uh, two years ago, in the summer of 2016, the Congress passed legislation which goes part of the way towards improving protection of children's health against toxic chemicals, but it's important to note that that legislation, like so much legislation, was compromised legislation. The chemical industry was in the room when the legislation was being written, and although uh, courageous members of the House and Senate uh, inserted many protections in there for children's health, uh, they didn't go as far as 
all of us in the pediatric community would want to see them go. So there are groups around the country with whom parents can join if they wish to become engaged in the struggle to protect children against chemicals. There are national environmental groups like NRDC, uh, the National Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Working Group. There's the MUMS Clean Air Force. There's the Children's Environmental Health Network. All of these groups are anxious for uh, to recruit uh, moms and dads and grandparents and anybody who cares about children's health to become involved in their work. And they all of them have websites. Well, Dr. Landrigan, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. Thank you, sir. It was a great, great pleasure for me as well. We're talking today to Dr. Philip Landrigan, the co-author of Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine. KBU Radio builds media makers. We believe strong, resilient communities must know how to make their own media. For the last 50 years, KBU has trained thousands of people how to produce compelling radio. We know that with our expertise and your support, we can keep this city activated and aware through radio. Invest in Portland's future media makers and join KBU on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter. Donate to the campaign and share it with your friends. And thank you for your support of KBU. What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Nina Packabush. Nina is a queer-identified grown-up teen mom. She's a young adult fiction writer, a zine maker, and a longtime mental health advocate. Um, Nina is the author of the new young adult novel, Girls Like Me, published by Bedazzled Inc., and Nina's also the producer of Madness Radio. So welcome on the show, Nina Packabush. Great to be here, Will. Well, people who listen to Madness Radio are actually somewhat familiar with you because you've been a behind-the-scenes presence. You're the producer. You do the editing and the technical um, side of things with Madness Radio for a couple of years, taking over from Leah Harris. So I'm really excited to have you as a guest, finally. Um, I've known that your your book has been in the works for several years, and I've been looking forward to this, and we're finally getting you on the show. So welcome to Madness Radio as, as a guest now. Thank you. I'm a lot more nervous as a guest than I am as the behind-the-scenes person. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is your first book, right? Yes, it is. I have to say, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I know you had written a book. I was excited to get it out there. And you sent me a copy of it. I 